Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. How is this? Is this loud enough? Yeah. That other one sounded so much better. You can hear me though, right? Okay, well, uh, I haven't sat in a chair in a long time. But, um, my immediate heartbreak with samsara is my knee is uh, uh, saying, sit in a chair. So that's where I am right now. Uh, I, I first want to mention that um, today, up until uh, just sundown, was uh, the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. And um, although I, I, I didn't go to temple and, uh, and I, I'm not probably a very, I'm not a practicing Jew. I was raised Jewish and, and this, this day uh, still has an impact on me. It is, it's the holiest day of the year if you're, if you've, been raised in the Jewish tradition, and I just want to mention it's the day, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, is probably most everybody here, whether or not you're Jewish, knows, and it's a day that you um, clean your slate with the world, that you um, ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness to anyone and everyone in your life who you might not have acted as skillfully as you'd like or who's, uh, who's been difficult for you. It's a wonderful holiday. It's a very solemn holiday. You, you fast on Yom Kippur if you're observing it, just as you're fasting to clean yourself out and to um, then... Um, declare your um, agreement with yourself that you're going to do as good as you can this next year. So I um, invite us all to clean our slates. And uh, I'll mention, as I've mentioned to a few people, if there's any way that I've either disappointed you or caused you suffering, I, I ask your forgiveness, and uh, I just want you to know that everyone here is in my heart and uh, with deep appreciation. So if anything, if you wonder if you've done something to me, let go of it, you know, done something negative, uh, and let's start fresh. So um, this series on uh, Shanti Deva, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Uh, as I said, we're up to the, the chapter on meditation. And in Pema Chodron's book, which is a really excellent book called No Time to Lose, uh, she devotes two chapters to this. And I like the way she does it, so um, I'm right now just going to Look at the first chapter, and uh, and discuss with you the the topic. 
heartbreak with samsara. If you're not familiar with the, the word samsara, other than the fact that it's a perfume, I know that. It's a perfume to entice that says, oh, you're going to be so happy if you wear this. You'll get everything that you want. Or if you give it to somebody who you care about, they'll be so thrilled they'll be yours. That's the promise of samsara. Doesn't always live up to its promise. That's the, the tricky part. And this is what samsara is. It is it it means literally the the uh, the wheel of birth and death in Buddhism and also in other uh, Asian uh, spiritual traditions, Hinduism and uh, Jainism and other traditions that we keep on going around and round on this wheel of suffering. Not a very upbeat way to look at life, but if you, if you are caught in this round of wanting, of thinking that the next thing will do it for you, you are continually pulled by the promise that is inevitably going to disappoint. And so the the meditation chapter starts out with seeing uh, what's in some teachings called the defects of samsara. In the Tibetan tradition, I think in the Theravadan tradition too, um, but Tibetan particularly, it's called one of the four mind changers that if you really get, if you really reflect on, they turn your mind towards the Dharma. The the four mind changers are um, the fact that everything is impermanent. Impermanence and death is one of them. Mm, that's, That's the scoop. What you are, the more you hope things will last, uh, the more you are bound to, uh, to suffer. So this, as you penetrate the truth of impermanence and death, you see the second mind changer, the preciousness of a human birth, that we don't want to waste this opportunity. As the Buddha says, we're like children playing it in the attic with our toys, not realizing that the house is burning. That we, if we just go along thinking, oh yes, life is so good, life is wonderful, uh, and don't see, don't make use of this time, uh, you will have lost a very precious opportunity to fully awaken, to fully liberate the mind of grasping of aversion, of confusion, to come to the highest happiness. That's the second mind changer. The third mind changer is karma, just seeing that our actions have consequences. And when you see that, when you really see how the game works, that everything you do has a result, can result in greater suffering for yourself out of not seeing it clearly, 
or happiness by acting in ways that create more well-being, then that also turns your mind towards the Dharma. And the fourth mind changer is the defects in samsara. That is, seeing through the game, seeing through the perfume, seeing through the, the gold shivers, seeing through all the things that we're told, this is going to do it for you. And Shanti Deva um, says that in order to really get down to meditate, you have to see the scoop. And so this, this first part of the chapter deals with these defects in samsara. Um, this is, uh, I'll read a little bit of it and then we'll explore in our, in our contemporary life. After cultivating diligence, that's the, the previous chapter, diligence meaning um, the enthusiasm and zeal you have for practice. This is taking the bodhisattva path. After cultivating diligence, when you really get enthusiastic, set your mind to concentrate. For those, and that's to meditate, learn how to meditate. For those whose minds are slack and wandering, are caught between the fangs of the afflictions. Very graphic. He doesn't hold anything back. And the afflictions, meaning greed, hatred, and delusion, all the ways that we get ensnared. In solitude, the mind and body are not troubled by distraction. Therefore, leave this worldly life and totally abandon mental wandering. Now, he's not saying don't just go off into a cave and never come back. He is saying there is a real value. It's essential to take a break. And he, ex he um, suggests a long break, um, a, a deep inquiry into the way things are to train your heart and your mind so that you can see through the, the dream see through the illusion and truly wake up. Because of loved ones, now here's, he gets into a, a little bit about how we get ensnared. Because of loved ones and desire for gain, because we get attached. Disgust with worldly life does not arise. Now he's saying, it's not bad to have a little bit of disgust with worldly life. I think it might be overboard, going overboard, to say life is disgusting. Just as the Buddha says, you know, there is suffering with li in life. He doesn't say all of life is suffering, but there's, su there's suffering. And the more you see the defects in samsara, as I said, then the more you start to look for some other way. So because of loved ones and desire for gain, disgust with worldly life does not arise. These then are the first things to renounce. Such are the reflections of a prudent man. To, that's a big one, to renounce our loved ones and our desire for gain. You might say, wait a moment here. Just hold that thought. 
penetrating insight joined with calm abiding utterly eradicates afflicted states. Knowing this, first search for calm abiding found by those who joyfully renounce the world. Disgust with worldly life. In, uh, in the Theravadan tradition, there's a, a word I've, I've mentioned here from time to time called samvega. And if you, uh, you might recall, if you've heard me say it before, samvega is um, seeing the futility of finding happiness in the way that life is normally lived, that everything passes. And so if you are holding on to or trying to arrive at that which is changing, uh, you are going to be continually disappointed. So life as it's normally lived and waking up to see another way. That's samvega, very much like what he's talking about. Samvega is seeing the defects in samsara. If I long and crave for other beings, a veil is cast upon the perfect truth. Wholesome disillusion melts away. And finally, there comes the sting of pain. Wholesome disillusion melts away. This is very much like in the Theravadan teaching, the word uh, nibida, which often is translated as, as disgust, revulsion, but really more um, accurately and skillfully translated as disenchantment. We get enchant You don't want to be repulsed and 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 feel disgusted about life. At least that doesn't work for me. Life, there's so much beauty to life. There's so much goodness to life. There's love and there's joy and there's the mystery of, of how everything is unfolding in, a, in some kind of lawful way and the beauty of nature. All of those things are extraordinary blessings. But we get enchanted we find ourselves under the spell of thinking this next thing is going to do it for us. And so nibida means disenchantment. You've broken the spell. And when you break the spell, then you can appreciate everything for how it is. Oh, yes, there's beauty, there's nature, there's love, there's relationships, all of those things not to be abandoned, just not to be under the, the spell of thinking that that's where the ultimate happiness lies. Oh, let's see. I'll read a little bit more, and then we can explore together. Indeed, O oh foolish and afflicted mind, and he's talking to himself, by the way. He's giving this talk, those of you who haven't heard this before, he's giving this talk to this audience of scholars and meditators who are trying to 
who, who don't think that he has much to say because he was not a very good student at Nalanda University. And they said, go ahead, you give a talk. And they think they were going to really embarrass him. And he said, but he's been doing a lot of practice, even though they hadn't seen him. And they said, should I give a classical talk or one that I make up on my own? Then they say, oh, make something up on your own. And he comes out with this incredible treatise, which, as I've said, this is what the, the Dalai Lama says is everything he knows about compassion he learned from this treatise. So he did a pretty good extemporaneous job. But as he's talking, he's talking to himself. He says, indeed, oh, foolish and afflicted mind, you want, you crave for everything. This everything will grow and turn to suffering increased a thousandfold. Because that wanting mind is where the, the pain lies. Since this is so, a wise man does not crave. For from such craving, fear and anguish come. And fix this firmly in your understanding. All that may be wished for will by nature fade to nothing. For people may have gained a wealth of riches, enjoying reputation, sweet renown. But who can say where they have gone to now with all the baggage of their gold and fame? Now he starts talking about some of the worldly conditions which perhaps you can relate to, the eight worldly conditions, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and shame, and pleasure and pain. Those are the, called the eight worldly conditions or the eight vicissitudes that we seem to bounce back and forth from uh, between. <coughs> Loss and gain. The, and they're both, both sides of those are traps. Not that they're bad. You know, it's nice to have praise or to have some pleasure or to gain and, and become successful. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But they're traps when the grasping mind comes in. One side of those pairs, obviously painful. Loss shame, blame, pain. That's clear. I want out of this. This isn't fun. But the other is even more of a, of a, of a trap when the grasping mind comes. It's kind of interesting how it's set up, how the game is set up, that if you, um, if you get a desire fulfilled, this always kind of intrigues me. It could have been set up a different way. That if you got a desire fulfilled, you just said, oh, how nice. Don't need anything more. Except that's not how it works, is it? That's what all of Madison Avenue and TV ads and everything that, that, that uh, is geared to fan your desires works. Because when you get a desire fulfilled, it feels so good that end of desire, that you just want another one, and another one, and another one. So it's kind of interesting that 
often desire leads to more desire. Now, there's desire that leads to more desire, or if you really wake up, there's desire that leads to the end of desire, like learning to meditate or learning to be free of the enchantment. So for people who may, may have gained a wealth of riches, there's probably a few people these days who thought they were very rich And then the, the second of the vicissitudes. Why should I be pleased when people praise me? Mm, hey, yeah, check it out. Pretty good, right? Others there will be who scorn and criticize. No matter how good people think you are, there's going to be a few people that say, oh, yeah, there was with the Buddha, there was with Jesus. The G Buddha has this great line. He says, um, in this world, those who say much are blamed, those who say little are blamed, those who remain silent are blamed. In this world, no one escapes from blame. Not even the Buddha. There were a lot of people who tried to criticize him. So why should I be pleased when people praise me? Others there will be who scorn and criticize. And why despondent when I'm blamed? Since there will be others who think well of me. It's like if our life is completely tossed and turned by, you know, what the last person said, we're going to be bouncing around a lot. I'll read some more. He has this whole section about craving and lust, which maybe I'll just read one verse. <laughs> it gets pretty graphic because what he, what he says is, you know, you like that body? What is that body going to be turned into? I'll, maybe I'll just read this, <laughs> this one line. It gets, he goes on and on about it. Mm hmm. Um, hmm. <laughs> oh boy. With Lank, he's talking about looking at the person that you're so crazy about, imagining them in their, in their coffin, in their, in their grave. With lanky hair, with long nails overgrown, with dirty teeth, and reeking with the stink of slime, this body, naked as it is, untended, is indeed a nightmare to behold. Um, did you see the heaps of human bones and feel revulsion in the charnel ground? Then why such pleasure in your, in your cities of the dead, frequented by such skeletons that live and move? You're so, you're so, and he's talking about himself, you can be so lustful, that body I want. What is it? It's hair, nail, teeth, and pus, and bile, and all the organs. You know, we've gone through the, through the uh, different parts of the body. To pay the bride price, young men are unable. So while they're young, what joy is there for them? Their lives are spent to gain sufficient wealth. By then, they're old, too old to satisfy their lust. This is when a young man had to earn enough to, uh, for a dowry to, uh, to find the, the, the bride of his choice. Then he goes into the fortune. That's enough on the 
lust part. Mm. Fools ensnared by craving for a livelihood decide that they will make their fortune in the wars, in the wars, though fearful for their lives and seeking gain, it's slavery they get. People who, or young men who join wars or who join the army so that they can make some money seeking gain, it's slavery they get. And then those who are successful, the trouble guarding what we have, the pain of losing it all. See the endless hardships brought on us by wealth. Those distracted by their love of riches never have a moment's rest from sorrows of existence. All that we desire is sure to perish, and afterwards we fall to hellish torment. And all for what amounts to very little. But with a millionth part of such vexation, enlightenment itself could be attained. If you put just a millionth of all the, all the energy you get into acquiring, into Dharma practice, the pain, then, then you could be enlightened like that. The pains the lustful take exceed by far the trials encountered on, encountered on the path. And at the end, the fruit is very far from Buddhahood. And so, revolted by our lust and wanting, let us now rejoice in solitude, in places where all strife and conflict cease, the peace and stillness of the green wood, in caves beneath the trees, in houses left abandoned, may we linger long as we might wish, relinquishing the pain of guarding our possessions. Let us live in freedom, unconfined by cares. And then, uh, let's see, does that one? Yeah, I think I'll just stop there. So, mm, here we are, you know, I, I as Pema Chodron uh, uh, mentions, you know, he, pl he paints such an intense picture for some people, it's like, you know, whoa, overboard for me. But he also talks about the joys, and on many of these teachings, he talks about the joys, the possibility, not just of running away from life, but of giving to life. That instead of going for what's in it for me, that if you give to life, what's in it? What can I offer others? How can I make their lives a bit brighter? How can I bring a bit more happiness into, into the world? That's the bodhisattva ideal that he's talking about, the, that is, reaps the highest happiness, that so far surpasses anything that we can get. Not that it's bad to have our our possessions, but when we're attached to them, this is a problem. It's not what we can get from the world, it's what we can give to the world. And as you have seen, perhaps in these last few days, you know, I, where very few are above the, the fray of, of gain and loss. Um, it's scary out 
around these days you know, with we talked about this last week and, and did some inquiry with the economy so uncertain. What does that mean? Now, if you're, if you're somebody who's, who's wealthy, then all that means is, oh, you have to do with a little bit less. But if you're not, if you're hurting already, then it's not just, oh, I can do without. And so want to be respectful of, uh, of this and just see where does happiness really lie. Some of the happiest people I know, many of the happiest people I know, just have a begging bowl, just have robes, have very little and are content with that. But it's not easy for most of us, you know, if we're living in the world and we get stressed by how we're going to make ends meet, how we're going to pay the bills. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. So what to do? He says, you need to get a little bit of space so you're not completely caught up in your fear. So you're not completely lost in, um, in how, how life is hard. Because in each moment, in this moment, if we, are, if we wake up to it, unless we're in immediate danger right now, we're alive, we are breathing, we have a mind that can contemplate, we have a body that's working, and meditation, or at least one aspect of meditation is uh, seeing what really matters and seeing that inside we have all the love that we need, we have all the wisdom that we need, and we don't have to be run completely by our fears. And we can at least more skillfully deal with the uh, difficulties that, that we face. I keep on thinking as I, as I watch the, uh, the vicissitudes. You know, if, you're, if you look at the, at the stock market, you know, it, I, I keep on thinking, wow, there's some people. I don't do this. There's some people who look at the stock market every day. That's part of their life. You know, and it's like... Oh, it's a good day. Oh, it's a bad day. Uh, and then these days, you look at the stock market and say, oh my goodness, you know, life is going to be awful. You miss out on, uh, on all the amazing things in life. And there's some really exciting things that are happening right now too, aren't there? Many possibilities that come out of difficulties. So you have to look at a very big picture. If you're looking at any one slice and saying, this is how it is, you're, you're missing a, a bigger picture. So I, I want to just first uh, make this more relevant to you and, and ask you just for a moment to go inside and um, 
with these eight worldly conditions, loss and gain and praise and blame and pleasure, pain and fame and shame or however else, what heartbreak with samsara do you get caught in? Where's your heartbreak with samsara? And uh, how does the practice help you? Think of all the people who don't have any tools to deal with their confusions or the vicissitudes in life. How does your practice help you? How does, how do you get enough space so that you can hold it in a wiser way? Just imagine if you gave yourself some space to really cool out, to really rest from this weary mind for just a bit. And you can do this each day, or you can do it for a longer period of time. What's it like when you have enough space in your mind to not be caught in your fears and confusion and heartbreak with samsara? So I'm just open it up now. We can let's have a, a discussion. Whether your own personal heartbreak with samsara or pra how practices um, supports you in uh, in these uh, uncertain times. Last time we didn't have a a chance for uh, an open discussion. It was more small groups, and just want to open it up now to more of a a group exploration. Anything that comes up. Uh, um, there is two things um, that help me. Yeah. One is I try to remember that everything changes. Yeah. So whatever I'm dealing with at that moment is just temporary. And the other thing is I try to remember that life is not happening to me, but life is happening. And mm. 
Say more about life is not happening to me, but life is happening. Say a bit more about it. Oh, um, that um, I try to, in meditation and as much as possible in my daily life, to feel that um, that my body is um, experiencing things that are not mine. And it creates space where then things don't feel, you don't feel the attachment to what's happening, mm. but you just see it. And it gives you just a little bit of space so that you don't react mm -hmm. to what's happening. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you don't react as strongly and have um, more equanimity. So by not, not taking ownership of the body, that life is happening, not happening to you, it's, it's expressing itself through you. And so um, I know I get really hooked by praise and blame. That's like the big one for me. Um, and I think what helps me is, um, I guess two things. One is actually was sort of coming to me and sitting that there's Buddha nature in everything. Um, so that helps me sort of uh, with humility. <laughs> and I guess the other piece that helps around humility for me is um, sort of how do I know that um, what is unfolding is not exactly what's supposed to happen. <laughs> so, um, which I guess just gives me more, yeah, humility, I guess, around the praise and blame and see that it's it's not about me. It's not, you know, or maybe part of it's about me, but a lot of of it may not be about me. Mm -hmm. So what's happening m might be might be just the way it's unfolding, and not the worst thing. Well, how when when somebody blames you, how can you how can you how do you hold that that it's there might be a reason for it, or I mean, there might be some value in it. What 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 helps you? I guess just um, maybe taking it as a teaching that there's something, maybe there's a, a teaching in that, and also compassion, just self-compassion at the same time. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, I just wanted to comment that I think- Put it closer to you. A lot of the things that we desire are <laughs> to not be heard. Um, <laughs> 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 um, are related to a longing for love. And sometimes when I read Buddhist things, I get really annoyed because I think, um, well, you know, he's talking about thinking about the body as deteriorating. And I'm like, that's such an intellectual detachment. And really, you know, when we want money or we want fame or success, we really want people to love us. Mm -hmm. And to just be with that in our hearts, you know, when we're having this experience and to to move away from it intellectually and detach ourselves, that, that seems the wrong direction to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So th this, this brings up the... The other side, that there's a lot of really beautiful things in the world, like love, like caring, like joy. And 
if you're only seeing it as a defect or as a problem, uh, you're just seeing uh, a very negative view of life. So I don't believe that the idea is to limit our love. In fact, what he's talking about in all of these, all of the teachings up until now are about how amazing it is to care for others. The whole, the whole treatise is about how good it feels to let your heart open, how good it feels to, to love others, not for our own personal gain, but just because it feels good to love and to care. Now, it's in there, love and attachment. They're, they're intertwined. You know, and it's, the, the, the trick is to, s to tease out the grasping from the expansive feeling of love. This is not an easy thing. Um, and so to realize that all the people that you love, you know, there's the, those, the, the reflections, the five daily reflections every day, um, the Buddha suggests remembering that everything near and dear to me will become separated from me. Not to depress you, but just to see this is the way it is. And so love completely, love with all your heart, and know that the wanting things to be a certain way is, um, is where the pain comes in. Even in the wanting for the relationship to stay a certain way. You know, when you, when you fall in love and there's the, uh, you know, the dopamine is going crazy for the first 18 months or so. And you say, groovy, okay, I got it. And if you have a long-term relationship, you realize the dopamine wears off and the, and the honeymoon ends. And it can be a real <coughs> rude awakening. It's not going to stay that way. And so I see committed, loving relationships as, as growing through those changes and, uh, and having the, the love between people just further amplify and wake wake up the love in in each of them so that there's more love for the whole world um, and you're right it's a it's a tricky kind of thing to um, to tease out the love from from the attachment so um, I'm all for celebrating all the goodness in life and noticing when it becomes painful and the grasping is where the pain is this is a big part of the practice. Um, I, I think that maybe Pema Chogd, Chog, what's his Chodron. name? Uh, Chodron. It should be read on the Day of the Dead. 
and uh, you know, a heart sutra maybe on the holy holiest day of the year here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, you know, I just finished reading, or almost the Art of Power by Thich Nhat Hanh, and um, I, I really love what he was saying in, in that book about you can practice in a cave out in the wilderness, but it's um, it, it somehow joining a sangha and practicing together creates that warmth and that love and that meaningfulness mm -hmm. um, that being so purely detached, you know, um, in that one way brings you back, the sangha brings you back into connection and into um, the, the giving back from that place, so it's, yeah. Ab absolutely true. You know, the Sangha, that feeling of connection and community is, uh, is priceless. We, we don't want to feel disconnected, and it's one of the three jewels. The other side is that there's something about going within that you touch a place of connection with your own heart that um, allows you to feel that much more connected with all the other hearts. And so when you see, besides looking outside for that connection, that when you really feel connected in here, um, just in the silence, then you have all your love to give out to everybody else. The more you get in touch with it here, the more everybody has a, a chance to experience it. Um, I had another book, Thomas Merton. Yeah, I, I remembered uh, Thomas Merton, Thoughts in Solitude. One of his lines, as soon as you are really alone, you are with God. Truth rises from the silence of being to a, a quiet, tremendous presence. When I am liberated by silence, when I'm no longer involved in the measurement of life, but in the living of it, I can discover a form of prayer in which there is effectively no distraction. My whole life becomes a prayer. My whole silence is full of prayer. The world of silence in which I am immersed contributes to my prayer. And there is, it is, it is a kind of, um, It's a mysterious thing that when you're when you get really quiet, you can listen to the rhythm of life, and you can get in touch with what's been there all along. That's trying to call you back to yourself, and there's there's nothing quite 
like that. You know, when people haven't meditated before, they say, why would you want to just be quiet and you know, go away for a, a day or a week or a month or, or longer? You know, it seems so bizarre. And yet it's like you're going into inner space and touching that place of purity and connection that you can't find any place else, any place else. And then the beauty of it is when you come out and you have just what you're talking about, that connection with everybody. It's, it's not one that you're looking to get something from them, but we're all just sharing it together. And, uh, and people can feel the power of, of the stillness that you've touched. So they, they both complement each other. It's really different than the pioneer, you know, going off into the wilderness. I don't need anybody. Stay away from me. It's like you're supported by people to go out yeah. into the wilderness. All you have is a bowl. So who's going to feed you? But the community when you come back. So yeah, yeah. That's one reason I, you know, I I encourage people say to sit together. You know, come to a day long or go to Spirit Rock, whatever. Because in that silence, it's extraordinary the intimacy that you feel you're all doing it together. We're all supporting each other. We're all cheering each other on silently to, uh, to wake up. So any last comments, particularly about life these days or what we're going through? Last one, Jim over here. Yeah, raise your hand. At risk of being um, sort of heretical, I suppose, one of the things that I sort of grasp towards or really, really want is the teacher that's perfect. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> and what I find with, uh, with some of the talking of, of uh, how messy and nasty the, the body is or whatever, I find that every place I go, there's something I disagree with. Something that just doesn't, or disagree is kind of maybe not the right word, but something that just doesn't speak to me. And almost every, every week that I come, something that you say really speaks to me. And, and also some of the things that you say just sort of, that's not for me. Okay. And part of the non-grasping is to say, I'm looking for, I'm looking for life, I'm looking for growth, I'm looking for something to enliven me, enliven the people around me some community and not grasping to for the perfection not grasping to to have a fundamental religion that says here it is there's the truth everything james says is write it down and <laughs> memorize it <laughs> but i still find life comes out in i mean from you from when we talk to one another around here and life happens yeah well as soon as you let go of the perfect teacher or the finding the perfect anything, there's a, there's a, a beautiful line in, uh, in the Third Zen Patriarch. He says, uh, to live in the highest realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That's the real realization, to be without anxiety about non-perfection, that 
in all its imperfection, life is perfect. And if you're looking for somebody, and I've done this so many times myself, to do it for me, or somebody who will never disappoint me, even the Dalai Lama has disappointed me. Uh, you know. And every teacher I know, you know, I've, I've put on a pedestal and said, well, they're not quite, you can fill in the blank. And, even, and the Buddha himself said, don't even believe, don't believe what everything that the Buddha says. That's the whole invitation, to see for yourself what's true and what's not true. And, uh, and so it's, a, it's an ongoing inquiry instead of having the answers in the back of the book, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Life is, is so much more creative than that, and so we, we keep on. That's what makes it enlivening, to wake up to see how it really is instead of taking someone else's word. I think the only truly useful thing that Freud ever said was that the measure of emotional spiritual health, emo emotional health, you didn't say spiritual health, I guess, the, the, me the measure of maturity is one's ability to tolerate uncertainty or ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, you'll get plenty of that. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so let's, let's close with a, a short loving kindness. Just um, let your attention rest in your heart and breathe in and out of your heart. Breathe all benevolent energy from life and take it right in and let it fill you and let it radiate out as you breathe out through your heart and share it with everybody. And uh, appreciate yourself for wanting to wake up, to seeing even some defects in samsara and, and loving life as well. And send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I wake up to my true nature. May I feel all the love that's inside and share it well. May I see through my confusion to see the way things really are. And then extend thoughts of well-wishing to everyone here and to all beings everywhere, to beings who are frightened and suffering, to those who cause suffering through their own ignorance to those who are happy and those who cause happiness, everyone without distinction. As I want to be happy, may all find real happiness. As I want peace, may all find peace in their lives. May all see through their confusion, see their true nature. And may all learn to share their love well. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings find happiness and peace.
Thank you very much for your attention. Mm. Have a good week. See you next week or maybe see you Saturday if you come sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.